Please turn to the book of Genesis. I'll be reading chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Father, I beg for Your presence upon me as I speak. I beg for the operation of Your Holy Spirit in each mind and affections of their hearts that we may glimpse at You who created us in Your image. To Your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is week three in the series of our journey through biblical history, or redemptive history, or Genesis to Revelation. What is going on here? What's the theme? And we saw the last time that I was here from Genesis chapter 1, the creation story. That God, who always existed eternally, never was there no God, then He created in order to extend His internal glory, essence, beauty, outward. We saw it in the text we just read. He created man in His own image. There's something about the nature of God that He took and extended it in creation that reflects Him. And we saw therefore... What did God create for? He created in order to have a reflection of His beauty, goodness, glory, essence to go outward. To say that shortly, He created everything for His glory. In other words, God saw that His eternal glory was so good that there's something about it that must overflow and extend. So He created human beings in His image, so that they could come into that glory and enjoy Him. And then we turn to the very end of the book, the book of Revelation. And listen to how chapter 4, verse 11 says this. It's now looking into the future of redemptive history. They will lay their crowns down, those who are being saved by Him, and say... Worthy are You, O Lord and God, to what? receive 
glory and honor and power because You created all things. And by Your will they existed and were created. From beginning to end, why, God, did You fling all creation into existence for My glory? When we stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, or down at Manhattan Beach and watch a sunset over the Pacific. We all know what it is to be moved by nature. But we've got to ask the deeper question. Why is that? What is it about nature that we feel so moved? In Romans 1, Paul answers that question. He says the reason the Grand Canyon and sunsets and babies exist is a reflection of the Creator of that image of His glory. And the essence of sin within us has said, I won't let it turn me to Him. And I'll make the creature into that which I worship. But God created mankind very different than He did dogs and dolphins. He created us to respond to a sunset. Not worshiping it, but worshiping Him, the Creator. And that's why He says in Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and so He created Him in His own image. In the image of God, He created man. Male and female, He created them. And we saw last time that this is the pinnacle, the point, the goal of all God's creation. That there's something about the glory of God that He creates everything for the purpose of creating man, not merely as a living being, and not merely as a living being with intelligence, but with a life and a mind and a will that could see, understand, and know the Creator and thus will to say and to feel you're everything. You're glorious. You are the air that I breathe. And that's why we saw He didn't end on the sixth day. On the sixth day, He created man and said it was very good. And then He goes, on the seventh day, God rested. Not because He was tired. He's God. The point is because it's done. This six days of creation in order to create these creatures after my image to reflect my image, my glory. Whew. Awesome. Done. We say it simply. Why did God create? In order to glorify Himself in creation. In order to glorify Himself through the pinnacle of human beings who would reflect by feeling 
about what they see of the Creator. Glorious. Awesome. Here comes the big question for every person. And especially for Christian people. Whom when we claim, okay, I believe in the Bible, what God has revealed about Himself, this is where we've got to be careful because here's the big question about what I have said so far. Does that offend you? Does it offend you that God created everything that exists and you and me so that He would get glory? I say it that way because naturally every single one of us in this room because of sin, naturally, the depths of our heart go against that reality. And that's happening with people like us this Sunday morning in churches all over the world. There's something about the way I've just said that. God created and you exist for Him in His glory, that pushes it away. And why it is so important for me to phrase it this way and ask as you only answer it to yourself, does it offend you? Is because that reality, as we are in this series of redemptive history, what is God about? This is foundational. If you say, well, I'll just skip this week about God's glory. I can't wait till we get to the covenant of Noah or the covenant of Abraham or the covenant of David. Or let's talk about the cross. If you miss this week, you miss the point of everything else. It is foundational that the reason anything exists is for the glory of God. Himself. All creation is a love story. It is birthed out of God's love for Himself. For His glory. And thus He creates a creature called mankind with a unique ability. Very much like He has a mind and a will. This unique ability to know and to want to delight in what is of supreme beauty and value which is God Himself. And God Himself loves, when I use the word love here, I mean it in this way, because it can be used different ways. We could love the person who needs a sandwich, so you do something for them. I mean the way you love food and air. I love that. I find great joy in that. I need that. God loves. 
that He loves Himself. Because there is nothing more beautiful or valuable or fulfilling or satisfying than Himself. And thus, He created us as finite beings in order that He may present Himself to us in all His glory to enjoy and to imbibe forever. And what this means in the church, we the church of Jesus Christ have to hear it in our day and age. What it means is that it is God's glory rather than our inherent worth that is the guarantee of God paying any attention to us. It's the guarantee of His mercy in the cross. It's the guarantee of His grace. It is the guarantee that He will act on our behalf. God created everything and does everything and moves in any moment, in any way, in any purpose that He moves for the sake of Himself, His glory, the extension of it. Remember Moses on the mountain said, God, show me Your glory. And God put him in the cleft of the rock, kind of covered, whatever metaphor that really meant. And God said, I will put you here, kind of cover your eyes and then kill you, and I will let my He didn't use the word glory. He said, I'll let my goodness. The essence of God's glory to Moses and to any of us creatures is His eternal goodness toward us. That is our only hope. His glory. It would be a miserable world if God acted from the motivation of something lesser than His glory. And that truth is the foundation. Or Let me say it this way. It's the blueprint of redemptive history. Again, I'll say, God is doing something from creation to consummation that in its shortest way could be summed up. He does everything for the praise and the sake of His glory. If you take that reality and don't want to try to understand it to that extent, you won't understand what's really going on in Noah and Abraham and David and Jesus Christ and the cross and heaven and hell and suffering and cancer and sickness. You'll have no grounds to realize what is this building while I see are people carrying lumber here, concrete being poured here, and it just looks chaotic as you read it and try to understand your life and your pain. But when you understand foundationally, This truth He created for His glory. Then, as you start to see the builders build, 
in redemptive history, it will start to come together more. You'll have a context for your life. You'll have a context for hell. I say that why? Always in the church, and they're around today in the evangelical church, where the teaching of annihilationism means we don't believe in an eternal punishment. This isn't born just on the doctrine of hell. It starts with not understanding or rejecting the doctrine of God in His glory. Now I can go on for an hour and bring up subjects. But they're rooted right here at the foundational level. If we don't see, Joe, the reason and the glorious reason you're even saved is for His sake and for His glory. We might end up being one of the four soils Jesus talked about. Yes, yay for Jesus. Yay, I'm a Christian. I'm saved from my drugs and my alcohol. Yay for me. But then when the trials of life come, they fall away. But why? Evidently, Jesus is saying there is something foundational that they thought Christianity was that it wasn't. And it had no place to understand their trials and their tribulations. And the more that the Gospel is turned to be man-centered, meaning the very core of God's passion in being is the creature instead of Himself. And we love in our sin to put ourselves there. The more you will wring your hands and say, how could He let that happen? And so, that's all introduction. So foundational. This is why where we started last time in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we're going to stop and take a pause for a few weeks. I want to pause because I want to dwell more on this question. I made it sound important, I hope. The glory of God. I want us to pause and I want us to reflect and say, what does that mean? When we talk about God created everything for His glory, I mean, I know, I know that can just be like all kinds of other Christian words. Just Christian ease. Christians are good at using Christian talk. And if you stop them in the foyer after and ask them, what do you mean? Some of them faces turn red and they have no idea what they mean. So we're going to pause. What does it mean for Him to create everything for His glory? But, see, there's a question that's prior to that. Prior to Genesis 1.1. When it says God, and then the verb, acted, created, we've got to go before the verb and say, God who? Or, if He created for His glory... What is His glory? Is there there something that we can understand about that that will be very helpful and beautiful and desirable to us? My hope today and the following weeks is that we will get a vision of God Himself so that we will say meaningfully 
and wholeheartedly from our heart what Paul said in Romans 11.36, for from Him and to Him and through Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. And so, where do I start? Here's the question. What is it about the very essence and nature of the eternal God Himself before He ever created that makes Him utterly, absolutely, perfectly contented, self-sufficient, utterly needless, fully, unboundedly happy. That's a, I think it's such an, it has been in my life such a massively important question and the answers to that have been a bedrock of my life for the last 15 years. Because if it's true, as the Bible says everywhere, that God is to be our greatest joy. This morning the question is, first, what is God's greatest joy? And so we start before Genesis 1.1. Before creation. And, and I can just sit there and quote Romans 11.36. You see, for from Him and through Him and back to Him all things to Him be the glory Forever, there's what Paul is saying there is God is utterly and absolutely self-sufficient, contented, happy, needless. He didn't create because he needed something. Like a farmer grows corn in order to feed himself. He didn't do that. But instead of appeal that way, I want to appeal this way. Just to your mind. Think. I'm going to start with a big statement as we contemplate God. And that is this. God by definition, is absolutely, eternally, without beginning, utterly, contented, full, happy, joyful, what, however, what's going to work for you, though that's what He is. He cannot tomorrow become happy. His nature is unbounded that way. Now, why do I say that? Now, I'm just appearing, appealing to logic. Because, think about it, by definition, God is omniscient. Latin, omni, all, science, knowledge, omniscience, all-knowing. There is no information. There is no wisdom There is nothing that is not perfectly clear to God. Past, present, future. He's omniscient. All-knowing. He is omnipotent. Omni, all-potent. We know that word. All-powerful. Which means God has the power and the ability to do, to be, to act in any way His will so chooses. Okay. Therefore, think about it, if that's true, then God has the power 
to order His very being in such a way that He deems best, that His wisdom guides Him to do. Which leads to this next conclusion. Therefore, God is, by definition, and eternally has been, infinitely, omnipotently, happy. Joyful. Why? This is what I call an axiom. It's axiomatic. I think it's a self-evident fact. Why? Because if God is omniscient, all-knowing, and all-powerful, to think that He has ordered His being in such a way from His knowledge to be any way which would make Him perfectly happy, but He actually chose to order His being in such a way that would be less than absolutely, omnipotently, infinitely happy, contented, fulfilled is an absurd thought. I wish I could just sit here for 35 minutes and just let you think. But I can't give you that long. Now, so you can go back and listen to the tape or the CD. We're going to go to the next step then. Okay. Let me just say, Joe, I buy that. That makes sense. I mean, I'm talking about just reason that out. That makes sense. He is infinitely, utterly, perfectly happy. God has never had a boring moment in His existence. Now the question is this. Then what is it about this eternal one God that must be true about His nature? or being that causes Him to be eternally and infinitely and gloriously happy? I submit that the answer, again, I think it's an axiom, because axiom means to, to think the opposite is absurd. He would have to love, that is, look at, delight in, Whatever is of supreme value, beauty, worth. Why? If there is such a thing as supremely beautiful, glorious, good, that's in existence, and God would know that in His omniscience, and thus choose or will to turn away from it and say, I'm not going to love that with all of my might, would be idolatry and would be absurd. Because if he did not view, take into, find joy from that which is most joyful, then he could not be infinitely joyful. He would be an idolater. It's the essence of it, turning away from the supreme being. Let me just put it this way. He is all-knowing, and He is all-powerful. He has the ability to do whatever His will so chooses to do. Therefore, God, in His omniscience, 
has a and has always been this way. He has a perfectly clear and absolutely undistorted knowledge of Himself. So clear is that knowing self-consciousness that it is literally and personally as a subject views the object of His delight. Just, I'm going to reach here. Every one of you do this. Some of us do it more. Some of us get caught doing it when someone walks in and hears me have a conversation with myself. It's called self-consciousness. But we know what it's like to talk to yourself. You know what it's like to be conscious of who you are and you argue with yourself. You're viewing yourself, but... oh. We're creatures. We're finite. But God is not finite. That's called infinite. Infinite. Thus, He sees and He loves the image He has of Himself. Infinite. So much so that the object he sees in the God mirror has always infinitely and omnipotently stood forth as his own object. In other words, for all eternity, God has been omnipotently delighting in His own perfections, His own glory as a subject, loves, takes delight in the object of what brings me most joy. As long as God has been God, He has been conscious of Himself as subject is to object. And the object is unbounded. It's not like a carbon copy which would always diminish a little bit and a little bit more. No, because he's infinite. He's all-powerful. It is an exact reduplication of the essence of Godness. As the Bible puts it, he's the only begotten. And as the creed of the church says very deliberately about the one who came to become a human being, He's the only begotten. He is begotten, not made. It's an eternal begetting Himself in the mirror of His essence and that object of God's affection which He beholds in that eternal mirror is so eternal, so absolutely equal in essence. He is personified in the second person of the Trinity. And so the Son, in whom the Father, without beginning, has eternally taken delight in, He, that Son, is the Reflection. 
the exact image of the Father's very nature. Listen to how Hebrews 1 verse 3 puts it, referring to this eternal Son who became man. He is the radiance, it's the image of the glory of God and the exact image or imprint of His nature. Philippians 2, 6-7 says concerning Christ, this Jesus who, though He was in the form, nature here is what morphe means, the form of God. This is before the conception in Mary. In the very form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or say, I cannot, not, I cannot incarnate myself. But no. The eternal God, who is in the form of God, emptied Himself by becoming a human being. Colossians 1.15-16 says it. He is the image. This Christ is the reflection, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by Him, Christ, the second person, all things were created. And so the Son in whom the Father has eternally delighted in is His own image, His reflection, His radiance. He's equal with God in essence. Therefore, when we open up the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, we should not be shocked when He says, in the beginning was the Logos, the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God Himself. And He goes on to say, the Word He's talking about is the One that was implanted in Mary's womb and became fully human. One person, an eternal person, with two distinct natures. God, fully and always. And He took to Himself full, 100% human nature. Let me take a little parenthesis here briefly and give you a little church history. The church, when it comes to these most crucial doctrines like the nature of Christ, the Holy Trinity, our creeds are usually born in controversy. So, just so, what I want to do here in just about two minutes is just say from church history and from Bible what I'm not saying. If you go these routes, you don't need to do it. It's already been tried and they have been reckoned through all the ecumenical councils by the 5th century A.D. as heretical. For instance, the doctrine of modalism. What that means is, this is not how to think about God. Father, Son, Spirit. Modes. Modes of being. In other words, I'm one person. To my wife... I'm a husband. To my children, I'm a dad. To you, I'm a pastor. 
three hats. One person. Sometimes I put on this one, sometimes I put on that one. But I'm just the same one person. That is not the God who really is. It's not that I'm the Father in this way, and then the Father puts on the Son hat, and then the Father puts on the Holy Spirit hat. It's called heresy. No, the persons within the one Godhead, the subject to the object, are distinct. Not in essence or being, they're God, but distinct in persons within the Godhead. You think, I don't get it all. I know. So, but secondly, uh, there's a heresy that has come through church history by the 5th century called adoptionism. When we talk about Christ and say He's divine, we do not mean that there's an eternal God who looked down on this really holy man named Jesus. And He's so holy that He had he adopted Him into the Godhead somehow like that. Kind of put Him on a higher level. It's not what we're talking about. And thirdly, we're not talking about Arianism, which is a heresy that came up from a well-meaning guy named Arius in the 300s, which trying to, how do we wrestle with the Scripture when it talks about Christ, this Jesus guy is also being divine and he had a good idea. Well, of course, for Arius, he wasn't eternally equal with God, but he's certainly much superior to us normal human beings. Long before creation, in eons past, God sprung this Christ figure into being as a superior being who would one day become incarnate. It's not what we're saying. He is the eternal radiance, eternal means, without beginning. God has never, ever, 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 ever been anything less than a diunity. We're going to get to the Trinity in a minute. Anything less than the subject infinitely and omnipotently loving the image of Himself as an object who stands forth as a distinct person. God's delight in His Son eternally before creation is a delight in Himself. God. This is what I want you. I want you to hear, think about it, cogitate over this question about this. But listen to me. When I make comments... And we Christian preachers from reading the Bible make comments that God loves Himself. That God does everything for His glory. It is this, what we're talking about. The Father, with all of His might, has utterly loved, like you love air, but infinitely more, loved the fulfilling beauty of His reflection in the person of the Son. And the delight. If we ask, I wonder if God really, really, as the Father, loved the Son fully enough. I wonder if the love of the Son 
towards the Father eternally, has really been with all of His might. We don't need to doubt now. Because that delight, that love, that joy that the Father has in the reflection of His image in the Son, and the Son reflecting it back to the Father, is so communally omnipotent that the very communion, the love, the dynamic between the Father and the Son has always and eternally stood forth personified in the person of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to quote, I'm going to let, I'm going to quote two Christian men from the past over this issue and just grab onto the words. I think they're right. Jonathan Edwards, reflecting on this, back in the 1700s, pastor in New England, one of the greatest thinkers in church history, in my opinion. Jonathan Edwards said it this way The Godhead being thus begotten by God's loving an idea of Himself and showing forth in a distinct subsistence or person in that idea, second person, there proceeds a most pure act, an infinitely holy and sacred energy arises between the Father and the Son in mutually loving and delighting in each other. So that the Godhead therein stands forth in yet another manner of subsistence. And there proceeds the third person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. C.S. Lewis in the 20th century, great apologist, Christian thinker, said it this way, Perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions is that in Christianity, God is not a static thing. Not even a person, but a dynamic, a pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama. Almost, if you won't think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. I know that almost sounds inconceivable, But look at it this way. You know that among human beings, when they get together in a family, or a club, or a trades union, people talk about the spirit of that family, or of that club, or of that trades union, or Notre Dame football. They talk about its spirit because the individual members when they are together, do really develop particular ways of talking and behaving which they would not have if they were apart. It is as if a sort of communal personality came into existence. Of course, it isn't a real person. It is only rather like a person. 
But that's just one of the differences between God and us. What grows out of the joint life of the Father and the Son is a real person. Is, in fact, the third of the three persons who are God. In John 17, as I'm wrapping up here, Jesus in His high priestly prayer before He was going to the cross, prayed. Note, second person of the Trinity in His human nature talked to the first person, the Father. Verse 24, Father, I desire that these You've given Me, they also whom You have given Me, the apostles, may be with Me where I am. To see My glory that You have given Me because You, Father, have loved Me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know You, I know You, and these know that You have sent Me. I made known to them Your name, and I will continue to make it known, so that, oh, listen to this, if this is talking about You, so that the love with which You have loved Me may be in them and I in them. This is not part of my sermon, but I'm going to add it right here. That experience is called new birth. That's why you can't cause yourself to be born again. That experience would be the love that the Father has eternally had for the Son, personified in the Spirit. And the only thing that wakes up us dead, wretched sinners to have any real taste of joy in the glory of God is if the miracle of new birth, meaning that very Spirit of God, love for God, has come into your soul. And you just know something happened. There's something in your brokenness still that is otherworldly. That's called saving faith. Back to my sermon. The very essence and the activity when I talk about the glory of God, when the Bible is referring to God's glory, I do all for my glory. My glory I will not give to another. Whatever you do, Christian, whether eat or drink, do all to the glory of God is that internal and eternal joy and happiness and feeling that the Father finds in the Infinite One Himself reflected in the Son. And the Son reflected back into the face of the Father. God has, therefore, by definition, 
been eternally delighting in and loving, need I say, worshiping Himself. Now, I know that speaking that boldly to our ears sounds to a lot of people like vanity, arrogance, selfishness. Because that's exactly what it would be if we did it. If we go home and we're finding our deepest joy in viewing ourselves in the mirror, that is idolatry. That is the essence of sin. Why though? Because we were made to delight in something infinitely superior to ourselves, who is a creature, a finite being. We were made for God. We were made to view and reflect and find our sustenance in life and joy and dependence in everything in Him to us. He is the most glorious of all beings. But now then you ask, what? If that's true about us, it's also true about God. How shall God prevent Himself from being an idolater? There's only one possible answer. To view and to love and to suck the life out of in the sense of I find my greatest fulfillment and joy and all my needs met in reflecting in the mirror of my Son. It's the only way to to not be idolaters. For us to do it, it is called sin. It's the essence of sin. It's a sin in the garden. We'll get there. It's idolatry. For God to love Himself omnipotently and infinitely and first and foremost always is the essence of righteousness. The righteousness of God is the infinite zeal and passion and affection that He has for His perfections and beauty and goodness. If God were to be and if He were to act from some other motive than that, He would be. Joe, give me the application for this sermon. I think a lot of people think that way. And what they mean by that is, okay, now, but let's make this real practical. Tell me how to go do something at work and physically. I want practical like that. People that think that way after the last 50 minutes, I don't know. i got to ask, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Here is my application. Go and think. Think about what it was said. Think about it prayerfully. 
obsessed over the reality that God is the most excellent and worthy of all beings precisely because He has loved the image of His perfections eternally and forever in the face of His Son. So much so that that very communal love between the Father and the Son is standing forth eternally personified in Him, the Holy Spirit. In other words, Go, contemplate unbounded happiness that is the essence of God Himself. And the spirit of that happiness that is personified in the person of the Son. Application, let us be a people who stand in awe of this reality. Of what? The glory. Of God. What I have been trying to unfold, and we can never unpack God fully, is I'm defining the glory of God. When you talk about God, glory means what is the essence of His being? And it is this dance, it is this dynamic, it is this eternal energy and activity called Trinity. That is the glory of God. So let us stand in awe in our thoughts and our feelings and thus turn away from fleeting pleasures of sin and trivial low thoughts and bitterness and resentment. And let us be very diligent to see in our understanding of the Gospel, in our understanding of redemptive history, what remnants that we have brought into it that have pushed God out from the center. Let us push all human-centeredness that is not in the Bible away from the Gospel so we'll see it and Him more clearly. In other words, oh, here's application. Let us join in more deeply by the Spirit of that joy in the joy of God Himself. And so in this series, I'm telling you, this sermon is going to be preached in everything I say for the next few months. I won't say it as long as I've just said it. This is the great assumption in looking at this book to understand it. Before God, as the text says, in the beginning, God created. Go. Reflect. Before the verb created about the God who did. And let your reflections then come into He created everything to extend the essence of the love He has for the Son and the Son for the Father, personified in the Spirit, outward, apart from Himself, in creation. Father, I ask 
your great miraculous help for every person in here in their questionings, in their mulling over your essence, your glory, you the holy, precious Trinity. Father, I ask for the miracle work of your Spirit to cause not only the logic, the intellect of our minds to see, but let our hearts view what we see about Your glory as radically life-changing. Oh, when we see that You saved us from sin, that it's not just so we can be free from sin, but so that we could be united with You, the Godhead, forever in Your infinite joy. Oh, let these truths permeate this church, permeate these people, that it will find its practicality in all that we do in this earth. To the glory, heavenly, precious Father, of Your Son who was incarnate for our sin and to become our righteousness by the power of the very Spirit of love between You and the Son, I pray. Amen. He is my light, my strength.